Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Japan's Prime Minister has been making the rounds, visiting leaders in Southeast Asia and Europe in what looks like efforts to beef up its security in response to the war in Ukraine. But what else might be on the agenda? And China just published a scathing fact sheet on U.S.'s National Endowment for Democracy organization, blaming it for revolutions around the world. What's the organization and why is China upset about it? Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Liu Xin. Japan seems to be whipped into a diplomatic frenzy. The country's new Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, has been making visits to countries in Southeast Asia and Europe. At the same time, he's scheduled to meet with U.S. President Joe Biden and other leaders from the so-called Quad Nations in Tokyo later in May. And the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs just published a new version of its diplomatic Blue Book, which emphasizes a stronger stance on several issues, including its relationship with Russia. What does it all add up to? Does it all signify some grander plans? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Zhao Hai, who is research fellow with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and Benoit Hadi Chatrand, adjunct professor of international affairs from Temple University of Japan. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. Um, Jahai, let me go to you first. As I said, in the latest uh, diplomatic blue book, Japan highlighted the end of what it calls its conciliatory approach towards Russia on the northern territories, which Russia, which Russia calls the southern Kuro Islands. Japan also used the phrase illegally occupied by Russia for these islands for the very first time in almost 20 years. And for the first time since 2011, since 10 years, it says that the islands are an inherent part of Japan's territory. What does it all signify here? Uh, I think Japan, after the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, has significantly changed its diplomatic stance, particularly against Russia. Because of this background, Japan decided that now is not the good time to continue the negotiation with Russia on its northern territory, the islands that you refer to. And now, uh, because the global community are sanctioning Russia, and particularly the Western countries, Japan has actively playing a part uh, within that community. And Japan's sanction against Russia is actually even more strict uh, than some of the Western countries like Canada and Australia. So at this point, Japan want, wants to play a leading role in criticizing Russia and mutually because Russia has banned uh, major, like the main um, Japanese leaders to visit Russia in the future and Japan did the same thing uh, reciprocally. So I think at this point, there's no point uh, to continue that discussion. Therefore, in this new blue book, uh, Japan has made a further stance on those Northern Territory uh, claims so that in the future, they wanted to start with a more hardline uh, position, what? even if they can restart the negotiation. What's the implication for China? Well, I think Japan has long, uh, uh, in the past few years, when the United States changes diplomatic and strategic stance in the Indo-Pacific, so-called, Japan also changes position uh, accordingly and has a grand, uh, the so-called free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. At this point, uh, with the change of its stance on Northern Territory, Japan has also uh, adopted a hardline uh, position on other territories, uh, including the uh, Daoyu Islands, the so-called Senkaku Islands, uh, and also its position on uh, Taiwan. 
So I think at this point, Japan, uh, again, wants to play a uh, assisting role in some areas, even leading role uh, in the uh, defense and uh, security arena uh, and building more stronger coalition within the Quad or uh, other bilateral security arrangements with the United States. Okay. Some people are saying, uh, Professor Hadi Chatran, that uh, right-wing and conservative tilt of Japanese politics is happening. Is that your observation as well? Um, in some sense, yes, but I don't think it's a new phenomenon. We have to remember that uh, this kind of um, um, advance towards a greater role in terms of regional security for Japan started about 10 years ago with former Prime Minister uh, Abe Shinzo. Uh, he came to power in 2012, promising to make Japan a more consequential player in terms of security. And he took a lot of steps during his uh, very long tenure in office here in Tokyo uh, to make Japan a not only closer to the United States, but also to make sure that it would be more proactive in terms of security. Now, what we are seeing under Prime Minister uh, Fumio Kishida is not a departure from anything we have seen before. It's simply a continuation of the of the previous line that we have seen with the uh, ruling party, the LDP. So it's not a revolution. It's not a break from the past. It's simply um, a continuation, and it's also, of course, a reaction to the recent all to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Without the invasion, um, we might not have seen some of the clear shifts or as fast as shifts as we have seen over the last few mm. weeks. Um, so right. it is certainly a conservative stance, but not yeah. as big as we might say, think. According to the Diplomatic Blue Book, the world has now shifted to a period of full-scale races among sovereign states, notably between the United States and China, from the one where the U.S. ensured stability and prosperity with its overwhelming political and military power. Uh, Zhao Hai, just a year ago, the wording was different. It was that changes in the balance of power in the international arena are accelerating and becoming more complex. So what's behind this shift in language? Is it laying the groundwork for further policy changes towards the right wing, towards the conservative side? Uh, or do you agree that it's just a continuation or it's actually picking up pace towards that shift? Yeah, I think it's uh, on the one hand a continuation for certain, but now we have acceleration, as you said. Uh, because if you look at um, uh, the issues on the table, uh, the Japanese dipl uh, diplomatic side and also strategic side apparently are now more aligned with the United States and playing a more active role in building the coalition, including uh, not only the military and security side, but also uh, on the technology and economic side uh, closer to the U.S. So now the concern is that in the future, uh, those areas will see more uh, Japanese activities, um, and now with the change and the new election in South Korea and in other parts of Asia, particularly in light of uh, the uh, war in Ukraine, uh, Japan is uh, in the position to increase its military expenditure and increase uh, connections, military uh, operations, intelligence operations with its allies and so-called uh, uh, other friendly countries in the region, and particularly Australia and India.
The Taiwan Strait was mentioned five times in the diplomatic uh, blue book, a record high. Um, Professor Hardy Chadrand, how do you look at that? Well, well, this is also, just like I mentioned, a, a bit of a continuation of previous, of the last few years. Uh, we have seen since about 2019, 20 approximately, a greater concern, at least publicly, when it comes to the, uh, the, the ruling party, the LDP, with Taiwan. We have also seen many more, uh, more and more Japanese politicians willing to uh, speak publicly and call for a much tougher position of Japan um, when it comes to the Taiwan issue. Uh, just one example is, of course, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, who has been quite outspoken on the issue of Taiwan. We have also seen a shift in Japanese public uh, opinion on this. Uh, many surveys over the last year have shown that Japanese people are more and more concerned over, over uh, Taiwan uh, relations, over what's happening in the Taiwan's trade. And as a result of that, what we're seeing in politics is just a, a, a bit of a reflection of what we also see in public uh, in public opinion in, in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, so we're also seeing, just to finish my point here, we're seeing also a greater uh, convergence of views on the part of both the United States and, uh, and Tokyo. And both countries have been, um, in many of their recent summits, we have seen Taiwan uh, near the top of the agenda. So again, this is a reflection of this. Taiwan is considered a red line, definitely, and uh, China's internal affairs. Zhao Hai, how concerning is that? I mean, when Japan starts to talk about Taiwan in such a, such a high frequency, and of course, uh, coupled with other things that we're seeing, for instance, Japan's ruling LED party proposed to increase defense spending to 2% of GDP, doubling the current uh, level, and Japan is also engaging much more actively with NATO, for instance, uh, Japanese uh, foreign minister took part in NATO's foreign minister's meeting for the very first time in history and also other uh, important meetings with NATO. How do you look at that trend? Is China being concerned here? Absolutely. I think from China's perspective, Taiwan is an excuse uh, for Japan to adopt more active military position and also trying to abandon its war renouncing constitution. Right now, at this point, you can see that uh, in recent years, Japan has increased uh, the uh, uh, frequency of joint uh, drills, uh, military and uh, uh, maritime drills with the United States. And now Japan wants to bring in European countries like France and Germany and uh, to be integrated into the so-called Indo-Pacific strategy. And UK, it seems that Japan, because Japan also, Japan also signed a kind of a, yeah, um, a defense cooperation with the UK. And UK even stationed uh, battle uh, warships actually in the Japanese port. So I think uh, if you add this up, and particularly right now, the Japanese are talking about increased military expenditure to 2% of GDP. That is very significant because if that being realized, that means Japan will be world number three in military expenditure. And on per capita terms, Japan will be six times bigger than China. And uh, it, it will rank number two in the world. Why would a peaceful country with a peaceful constitution increase its military expenditure to that extent? And how much China posed the threat to Japan to justify such an increase? I don't think that makes any sense because right. China's uh, military expenditure is only 1.7% of its GDP and its uh, increase uh, speed is actually slowing down. So I don't think Ch okay. China really posed that threat. Finally, um, Professor Hadi Chaturand, uh, what is uh, the different voices in Japan? It's a controversial issue. A lot of people are protesting. What are you hearing? Keep it short, please. 
Absolutely. Um, in Japan, there are there is obviously quite a bit of controversy over this issue. I think in the Japanese population, there is a very large proportion of people who uh, do value the peace constitution. And this is the reason why it's been difficult for the LDP to amend the constitution. Uh, in order to amend it, we need to have more than 50% of the population uh, that support this change. And so far, we have not seen that. It's been around 30 to 40%. So that uh, just shows you how while there is some desire in right. the political sense, not in the population. We don't see that yet. All right, we have to leave it there. Many thanks to Professor Benoit Hardy Chatrant joining us from Temple University of Japan and Zhao Hai joining us from Beijing from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Democracy weaponized. China exposes the national endowment for democracy from the United States as the main foot soldier for the country to incite division and uh, confrontation in countries considered hostile, causing catastrophic consequences. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs published a detailed fact sheet on the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy just days ago on May the 7th. So what is this organization? What does the world need to know about it? I'm pleased to be joined for this edition of The Point with Mili Shin from Philadelphia, the United States, by Brandon Blackburn Dwyer, President of uh, Grasshopper Strategy, a consulting firm from Managua, Nicaragua by Benjamin Norton, founder and editor of the independent news outlet Multi Multipolarista and from Beijing by Mr. Lu Xiang, research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Gentlemen, welcome to the point. Benjamin, let me go to you first. What is your knowledge of this organization? How does it serve U.S. interests? Is there a pattern? Yeah, the National Endowment for Democracy is effectively a front for the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. It was born in the 1980s out of the Ronald Reagan administration's CIA under the leadership of William Casey. And where I am right now in Nicaragua, people really, they, they understand what the NED is because the NED was involved in the 1980s in supporting the Contras which were right-wing paramilitary groups backed by the CIA in order to violently try to overthrow the leftist Sandinista government. The NED essentially operated in the same way the CIA had operated covertly. The difference is that the NED did the operations overtly, that is out in the open. In 1991 in the Washington Post, uh, David Ignatius, one of the, the leading Washington Post journalists, uh, published an article about the operations of the NED and in that article, he quoted the co-founder of the NED, Alan Weinstein, who admitted that the NED is a CIA cutout. And he said in that Washington Post article that what we do today in the NED is what the CIA did 25 years before, but the difference is we do it out in the open. We do it overtly. So in the mm -hmm. case of Nicaragua, the NED was used to provide funding to the Contras, to provide funding to right-wing political parties against the Sandinistas, and that was the original operation in the 1980s out of the Ronald Reagan administration. That was the kind of blueprint. And since then, the NED has continued these operations throughout the world. Where I am in Latin America, the NED has been banned in numerous countries because of its role in supporting violent coup attempts. 
of its role in supporting extremist groups that carry out violence against elected governments. And in Latin America, it's only one example. We see that the NED plays mm -hmm. a very similar role in Asia and other countries. And effectively, it operates as an arm of US government soft power to destabilize foreign governments where Washington seeks regime change. Brendan, the NED calls itself, however, an independent nonprofit foundation. Is it really an NGO? It's a nonprofit organization. It is uh, does receive a majority of its funding from the U.S. government. Um, to put that into context for a lot of the things that my colleague has, has said, it's interesting how facts can be true, but really not representative of the true story. The 1991 comment about the NED funding organizations and doing things that the CIA used to do 25 years beforehand is absolutely true. And the reality is in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, the CIA did a lot of things. They were very complicated organizations. They did both social justice and community building and infrastructure building and deferred democracy actors, as well as what we think of as the CIA covert regime change types of thing. And in the 1960s, we started saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing these in the same organization. Maybe we actually need to respect public institutions, public discourse, election development, legal systems development as a separate arm of global development and peace. And so that's where what led over 20 years of discussions that eventually culminated in the NED and its major subsidiaries, the National Democratic Institute and the International Republican Institute that help countries develop things like election monitoring, uh, develop things like political parties, political discourse, uh, train people how to actually disagree in public and have public discourse and protest. These are things that generally are not liked by governments that are in power, that seek power by largely non-democratic means, but they are done and supported by many, many, many organizations like the NED, like USAID, like other organizations that want to basically teach people how to build the infrastructure of democracy. It is done openly, transparently around the world. And just because at one time this type of activity was done covertly, that cannot paint entire rest of the future of developing public discourse. I see your point, uh, Mr. Liu. How do you respond to what uh, Brandon just said and how much of NED's operation is about promoting real democracy and how much of it is really um, sowing the seeds of disquiet, discontent in these societies that are considered hostile to the American interests? Oh, okay. My first point is that, to, uh, you know, democracy is weaponized by this organization. Second, uh, my second point is that NED is never an independent organization. It's totally funded by the US Congress. So it, it's not independent. The third point is that in the US operations uh, in other countries, they have, usually they have two forms. One is covert, the other is overt. Overt and just uh, NED, yeah, it's generally speaking, NED is in is an overt uh, form of uh, U.S. Uh, overseas uh, operation. But we also heard uh, in the U.S. They, they they have another classification of the U.S. operation in in other countries. One is called black, the second called is gray, and the third is white. White usually means uh, means open and overt. Uh, so NED is an uh, okay, it's an white organization. They they do what 
what the U.S. government wanted them to, uh, and they do it publicly. Uh, and behind, they have uh, very complicated uh, relations or uh, coordinations with other agencies like CIA. It's another form of CIA. So they are in very close collaborations in operation in operations in other countries. Benjamin, what is your reaction to what Brendan just said now that uh, a lot of the activities carried out by the NED are about promoting social organization, promoting opposition parties, uh, while some may have resulted in some kind of color revolution or regime change, but you cannot deny the whole operations, the whole organization because of some of these incidents? Well, that's how the U.S. government presents it, but that's simply marketing. The U.S. government claims that it's acting in behalf of democracy and human rights. The U.S. said that for the Iraq war. It has justified every act of aggression and regime change operation and war by claiming that it's doing so in the name of benevolence and democracy and human rights. Again, that is simply the propaganda or the window dressing. The reality is that when we go back to the very history of the founding of the NED in the 1980s out of Ronald Reagan's CIA, we see that it has always been an instrument of U.S. soft power aimed at overthrowing independent governments that Washington did not like. And going back to the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, the NED played a key role in supporting anti-Soviet organizations. And in the case of Poland, which was not part of the Soviet Union, but part of the Socialist Bloc, the NED funded anti-government organizations that led to the overthrow of the People's Republic of Poland. One of the most famous is a right-wing union called Solidarity. And we see in, here in Nicaragua that this history has continued to this day. In fact, in 2018, where I live right now here in Nicaragua, the NED played a key role in a very violent coup attempt against the elected Sandinista government here. The government is democratically elected. The right-wing opposition consistently, according to polls, has only around 15 to 20% of support. They can't win democratic elections. So instead, these groups funded by the NED carried out a violent coup attempt with the support of Washington, and hundreds of people were killed on both sides. And we need to keep in mind that, as I've shown in my reporting, the NED funded numerous media organizations that openly published calls for violence, that openly called on people to murder the elected president, Daniel Ortega. These were media outlets like 100% Noticias, like La Prensa, like Confidencial. These are right-wing media outlets that received millions of dollars from the NED and also from USAID, the US Agency for International Development. These organizations claim to support civil society and they claim to support independent media outlets, but those civil society organizations are ones that serve Washington's foreign policy interests. And like I said, I need to stress that, yes, not all of them are extremists and not all of them are violent, but some of them are violent and some of them have participated in violent coup attempts here in Nicaragua in 2018, a successful coup in Bolivia in 2019, in which NED-funded groups played a key role, mm -hmm. and many other examples. Okay. Right. Brandon, your reaction? And also, if the NED is really about freedom of expression, about uh, uh, teaching people how to express their dissatisfaction with the government, even using violent means, uh, how come they are not so active in the United States? Or maybe they should be promoting their democracy in the United States because the demo democratic state of the country is uh, in pretty poor sh shape, as we've seen from the events from January the 6th. 
Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, one, every country in the world can use well-trained election monitors. The United States and any country that actually has a legitimate election should have more of them. Maybe we'd actually trust and have faith in more of them around the world and in the United States if there were more of them. There are great organizations that do work in the United States to train those people, just like NED does around the world. Connecting NEDs, largely civil disobedience, largely political infrastructure, discourse, political parties, democratic systems, education that they provide in many countries around the world and painting them with a brush because individuals that went through this training choose to take up arms separate from NED is a pretty big stretch. It's a really nice bright line for somebody looking for a conspiracy theory to say, hey, because this person went and worked with this group and learned how to be an election monitor and then five or 10 years later, they picked up a gun and became violent and radicalized, that doesn't mean that NED was the cause of it. What they are there to do is to teach people, to provide information, to build up infrastructure, to build social society so that it can have a larger say in the democratic process. They've done that across the world. They've done that peacefully in many, 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 many places. In some of those places, the people they've worked with have turned violent, but it is not the same as saying that the NED is the big bad behind the curtain on everything that has happened around the world. Professor Liu, what is your reaction? Yeah, uh, actually, you know, NED is very active in, uh, in almost all political movements in different countries. Uh, for, if we take an example, that's Hong Kong. We, in, in two years ago, we, we, we saw that NED is very active in mobilized uh, protesters and uh, political uh, leaders who are opposing to China and uh, the, China, the Chinese central government and the Hong Kong local governments. So they, they not only uh, give money, they, the most thing they contribute to the turmoil is that they brought those political opposition leaders to the world stage to make them prominent, to make them famous, to make them more brave. So, so this is what NED uh, did in the Hong Kong turmoil. Yes, uh, money is just one part of the story. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to my guests, Brandon Blackburn, Dwyer, Benjamin Norton, and Lu Xiang. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. You've got the point. 就是晚上下雨,三里屯附近吧,就是他就那个有心脏病了,就那个他下雨。It was midnight with heavy downpour around Sanlitun. A client placed an order for some heart disease medicine. At around 3 o'clock in the morning, I noticed the order still had not been picked up. So I took it and called the client. She thanked me in tears and her voice broke when I handed the medicine to her. Hear more stories of delivery men and women in China in Beat the Rush, a radio documentary brought to you this weekend by CGTN Radio.